Ephesians 6 is where we'll be. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1,163. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Bibles are open, hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. As far the reading of God's holy word. In his book, The Boy from Block 66, Holocaust survivor Limor Regev tells of he and his mother's immigration to the newly reconstituted nation of Israel in 1949. It was the time of Israel's war for independence, and Regev writes this about his arrival. There was still an atmosphere of war in the country. From the trip, I remember loading our luggage on the roof of an old bus and the many roadblocks set up on the roads. Most of the young men were drafted into the army as soon as they got off the ship and were sent directly to the front sometimes without any training. I was given a one-year deferral because I was an only child, end quote. Now let me ask, how, how would you like that? You arrive in a country that you've been longing to immigrate to, and as soon as you touch foot on its soil, you're given military fatigues and a weapon, and your orders to the front line of battle. That's what was happening to the young men arriving in Israel in 1949. But let's be honest, the Christian life isn't that different. No sooner do we become a, a citizen in God's kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are sent off to war. Paul is making this point at the very end of Ephesians. In this great letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he has told us what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then, and then Paul has called us to, to live in light of what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now, at the very end of this letter, Paul reminds us that no sooner do we become citizens in God's kingdom than we become soldiers in a war between the kingdom of light 
and the kingdom of darkness. This morning, we're going to look at the first four verses of this final section of Ephesians. And in these four verses, this is what we see. We see a countercultural command given for our supernatural struggle. At one time, that was my sermon title. Nikisha told me it was too long. <laughs> so now it's just a supernatural struggle. But what we see is a countercultural command given for our supernatural struggle. And we're going to look at the text in light of those two headings this morning. So first we have here a countercultural command, okay? A countercultural command. Now what is the countercultural command? Well, the countercultural command is this: Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, why do I call this a countercultural command? Well, because that's exactly what this is. Consider what our culture commands us to do. Our culture commands us to be strong in ourselves and in the strength within. You can go on Amazon right now and for $14.99, you can buy a t-shirt that says, I am strong, okay? For $24.99, you can buy a t-shirt that says, I am strong and I am smart and I am brave. That's our culture. That's the instruction that it gives to you and I. Now that sounds good. That sounds nice. But hear me clearly, that is nothing less than secular, godless humanism. It's nothing less than this world's command to you. Be strong in yourself and in the strength you have within. The gospel, the gospel gives us a different command, a, a countercultural command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, it means to be strong in the strength that the Lord provides. And the Lord, he does provide strength, doesn't he? The Lord enables his people to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Think of, think of David and Goliath, okay? David didn't defeat Goliath in his own strength. David defeated Goliath in the strength that the Lord provided. David said to Goliath, you come at me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. The rest is history, isn't it? You know what happens from then on. Think of the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And then he tells us how he is able to do this. It's not because he has so much strength in himself. It's because he says, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. God is the God who strengthens his people and who enables his people to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Maybe a better question this morning is, how does one obey this command? 
How does one take it upon themselves to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? Well, well, Paul's going to give us some specifics on that in the verses that follow. When he tells us to put on the full armor of God, he is telling us specifically exactly how to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We'll look at that next week. But there is, I think, a, a general application that can be made in regards to being strong in the Lord. Just think of what the apostle says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, okay? He's speaking there about his thorn in the flesh and about how that thorn has humbled him and about how that thorn has, has weakened him and about how that thorn has left him with really no choice but to depend on the Lord. And what does he say at the end of that section? He says, when I am weak, then... I'm strong. His point is, when we're weak in ourselves, weak in our pride, and therefore depending on God, then, then in that moment, we are strong. Okay, people of God, those, those who are strong in the Lord are those who live in humble dependence on the Lord. The more dependent you are on God, the stronger you will be in God. When we are weak in ourselves, then, then we are strong. So that's, that's the countercultural command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, why is this countercultural command given? Well, it's given precisely because as followers of Christ, we are engaged in a supernatural struggle. That's our second heading this morning. A supernatural struggle. That's what Paul is speaking about in verses 11 and 12. Here he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, as believers in Jesus, we are engaged in a supernatural struggle with the enemies of Christ. And let's notice some things about this supernatural struggle. Let's notice what Paul says about it. In the first place, let's notice that, that in this struggle, we have a supernatural enemy. Who is that supernatural enemy? Well, our supernatural enemy is the devil. We see him named at the end of verse 11. Now, who is the devil? Well, well the devil is a powerful spiritual being who hates God and who opposes God's people. In Revelation 12, verse 9, we learn that the devil is known by a number of names in Scripture. Among them are the ancient serpent and Satan. And so that means we, we first meet the devil in the Garden of Eden. Here he shows up in the form of a serpent, and he convinces Eve to eat the forbidden fruit using those words... Did God really say? And already in Eden then, we, we see one of the devil's schemes, don't we? The devil likes to cast doubt 
upon the word of God. We see the devil again in the book of Job. Here he challenges God and he says, God, the only reason Job serves you is because of the good things you've given him. Take those good things away and I'll bet he curses you. There we see another scheme of the devil. He tempts us to curse God in the midst of our suffering. We see the devil again in the life of David. 1 Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. There we see the devil tempting David to, to find comfort in the size of his army rather than in the Lord. And again, that's a common scheme of the devil. The devil tempts us to find comfort in the things of this world, like, you know, the size of our army, or maybe the size of our bank account, or maybe something else, rather than in the Lord. We see the devil again in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right. Your right's over here. Mine's over here. Satan standing at his right to accuse him. This too is one of the devil's schemes. The devil accuses us. The devil points out our sin and tries to convince us that we are miserable wretches whom God could never love. That's a scheme of the devil. And then again, we see the devil in the life of Jesus, don't we? Right after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, he goes out into the wilderness and the devil comes and the devil tempts Jesus three times and really the same way he tempted Eve by casting doubt on the word of God. And then we see the devil coming for Peter. On the night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus says to Peter, Simon... Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. It seems there that, that just like in the days of Job, Satan had, had approached the Lord and asked to put Peter to the test. And then we see the devil again in the stories of Judas and, and Ananias, two men who were seemingly destroyed by the devil and by the temptation which the devil brought into their lives. All throughout scripture, we see this, this supernatural enemy waging war against the kingdom of God. And of course, he's still doing it, isn't he? In fact, the apostle Peter says that you and I, as believers in Jesus, are hunted by him. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Isn't that, that is frightening. We have a, a supernatural enemy. We cannot see him, but he can see us. And not only that, he's hunting us, Peter says. What can we do in light of that truth but be strong in the Lord? And in the strength of his might. Well, let's notice further that our, our supernatural enemy, he employs supernatural forces. 
We see this in verse 12. There Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those four terms there, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, those are four terms which together represent the the vast array of evil spiritual beings which are under the devil's power and which are at work with the devil opposing the kingdom of God. So even as as Hitler had a vast array of Nazis under his power who would carry out his evil schemes in Europe, so does the devil have a vast array of spiritual forces of evil to carry out his schemes against the kingdom of God. Okay, the devil is not God. The devil is not omnipotent. The devil is not all-powerful. He can't be everywhere at once. He has to, he has to, he has to use others, and he has, a, he has an army of evil spiritual beings that he employs against us. And we must understand what Paul is saying here in verse 12 when he says that our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces of evil. Paul is not saying, he's not saying that as Christians we, we won't have human adversaries. That's not what he's saying. We most certainly will have human adversaries. We most certainly do have human adversaries. In the Christian's life, there are Saul's and there are Judas's and there are Jezebel's who stand against us in our faith. There are, there will be. Okay, that's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is that these human adversaries aren't the ultimate fundamental problem. What Paul is saying here is that behind these human adversaries are fallen angels and demons and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If I, if I might put it another way, Paul here is seeing, do you, do you see these godless governments which sanction abortion and which make it increasingly difficult for you to freely follow Christ? Do you see these organizations like Disney and Facebook which indoctrinate our children with godless humanistic philosophies? Do you see those college professors who scoff at the truths of our faith? Do you see that coworker who mocks you for being a Bible thumper? Do you see these churches in your community that fly rainbow flags and celebrate sin? Do you see see how lust or greed or hatred uh, is in incited so easily even in your own heart? Well, if so, note well why these things happen as they do. It's because there's an evil force at work. I should say there are evil forces at work in our world opposing Christ and his kingdom. I thought of that a moment ago when Don mentioned about how their translators were often dealing with health issues. That a coincidence? (laughs) I think we would say no. That's not a coincidence. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, let's notice further yet that our supernatural enemy who employs supernatural forces launches intense supernatural offensives against God's people. We see this in verse 13. 
There Paul writes, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What is the evil day spoken about here? Well, well, there are three possibilities. Possibility one is that the evil day is a time of intense tribulation which will take place just prior to the coming of Christ when satanic opposition reaches its climax. Possibility two is that the evil day refers to the time we are in now between the first and second comings of Christ. In fact, Ephesians 5.16, in Ephesians 5.16, Paul calls the days we are living in now evil days. It's possible that the evil days of chapter 5, verse 16 are synonymous with the evil day of chapter 6, verse 13. Possibility number three is that the evil day refers to critical moments in each and every one of our lives when temptation is especially intense and when the spiritual forces of evil uh, seem to be unleashing their fury upon us in extraordinary ways. Most believe the evil day is some combination of, of, of possibility one and three or possibility two and three. It kind of depends on your eschatology and your end times theology. I'm not going to get into that now. What I am going to say is that whoever you are, you believe number three is part of this. The evil day refers to those critical moments in the believer's life when temptation is especially intense. And when we feel in our souls what seems to be the full force of Satan's attack. You want to know, want to know what frightens me? Maybe you don't, but I'll tell you. Since I've been here, it's been about a year and a half, or coming up on that, roughly. I think things have gone, I would say, well, Pastor Dirk, how's things going at your new church? I still get asked that uh, by, by friends and whatever, and, and, and I think things are going well. It's been minimal, minimal conflict, low level of drama. Pastors love low levels of drama. We've had new members, we've had baptisms, we've had professions of faith. We look forward to a few more of those next week. Again, we, we've made our budget. Pastors love those things too. It's really, it's really been somewhat delightful. And dare I even say, if I knock on wood that's superstitious, so I won't do that. Dare I even say it's been somewhat easy for me to pastor this church for the first year and a half. And yet, this isn't my first rodeo, as they say. I've seen it before. I've heard the stories. I've witnessed it in friends' ministries. When things go well, the devil doesn't like it. And at such times, he will often come hard for a congregation and for its members and for its leaders and for its pastor. In such times as these, he will bring the evil day upon a congregation. And suddenly people will begin to grow cold and selfish and critical and angry and despondent and lukewarm. And the church, which was so delightful to be a part of, 
will become hard and will become difficult and will become filled with tension and angst and mistrust and suspicion. The fellowship that was sweet will will become bitter. And before any of us know what happened, we'll be picking up the pieces. People of God, beloved congregation of North Street Christian Reformed Church, we must be ready. We must be ready. Because our supernatural enemy who employs supernatural forces has a way of launching supernatural offensives against God's people. And it seems that things can only go so well for so long without the devil taking notice and saying to his minions, all right, enough of that. Let's get them. Brace yourself. Guard your heart. Recognize the evil day when you see it in your own soul. And remember your clear objective. And that's the last thing I want us to notice about this supernatural struggle. In this supernatural struggle, as believers in Jesus, we have a clear objective. And what is that clear objective? It's to stand firm. Three times in our text, we're told in some way, shape, or form of the need to stand or to stand firm. We, we see it in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We see it twice in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm, okay? In this supernatural struggle, we have a very clear objective. The objective is to stand firm. And at the end of Ephesians, this is an appropriate objective. Just consider what we've been told in this letter. I mean, it's taken us all of a year and a half about to get through it. Maybe you've forgotten some of the things we were told. But let's just consider some of the things we were told in this letter. We were told in this letter that in Christ... God has chosen us. In Christ, God has adopted us. In Christ, God has redeemed us. In Christ, God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, God has given us new life. In Christ, God has brought us into his one spiritual family. In Christ, God has gifted each and every one of us to serve this one spiritual family. And now when Paul says stand firm, he means stand firm. In all that God has so graciously done for you in Christ, stand firm in your election. Stand firm in your adoption. Stand firm in your redemption. Stand firm in your new life. Stand firm in the church. Stand firm in all that God has graciously given you in Christ. Stand firm in the place God has brought you in Christ. The devil wants to undo what Christ has done. The devil wants to push you back into his kingdom of darkness. He wants to destroy this one spiritual family that God has made and is making. He wants to destroy your new life. He wants to destroy your sealing with the Holy Spirit. He wants to undo your adoption. He wants to undo your eternal election even. That's the devil. He wants to undo these things. He hates these things. 
And your clear objective then in this great cosmic supernatural struggle, it's to stand firm. It's to remain in the place Christ has brought you by his blood shed on the cross. Now the text is clear, isn't it? You can't do that in your own strength. You can't do that if you rely on your own resources. You can only do that insofar as you are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Of course, the text is also clear that if you are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, you will stand firm. Paul here is not speaking to us as if if we have no hope in this spiritual struggle. He is not speaking to us as if the odds are against us in this spiritual struggle. No, he is speaking to us as if we have great hope. He is speaking to us as if the odds are in our favor. He is speaking to us as people who, who by God's grace and with God's help and in God's strength, we can and we will stand firm. That's how Paul is speaking to us here. We ought never forget, right, that these spiritual forces of evil who wage war against our souls and the church, they're losers, all right? They're already losers. Boys and girls, you can't call your brother or sister a loser. You can call the devil and the spiritual forces of evil a loser, okay? They're losers. They've already been defeated by our king. And Paul has made this clear earlier in the letter. In Ephesians 1, we see many of these same terms found in Ephesians 6. This is what we read, Ephesians 1, verse 20, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power. Three of the words that are found in chapter 6, and dominion, and above every name that is named, and he put all things under his feet. What did Paul tell us there? He, he, he told us that these rulers and these powers and authorities, they're under Christ's feet. They've been conquered by him. Christ has triumphed over them. He says the same thing to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. These spiritual forces of evil who wage war against our souls and against God's kingdom, they are losers. They've already been defeated by our king. Never forget that. They're a lot for us. They're no match for our king. And that's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, because his might is sufficient. His might will not fail you. His might has already proved more powerful than our enemy. I'm reminded again of of what the Heidelberg Catechism says, this time in its teaching on on the Lord's Prayer. The Catechism, at the end of of it, 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 it exposits the Lord's Prayer. And in question and answer 127, it asks this, what does the sixth request of the Lord's Prayer mean? The sixth request is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. The catechism says, what what, what does that mean? What are we asking for? 
When we make that request of God in the Lord's Prayer, and this is the answer the catechism gives. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one means. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own for even a moment. And our sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down in defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we win the complete victory. Spent much time in the catechism throughout my ministry when I was in seminary. A lot of these words are sort of ingrained on my heart, which is why I commend them to you. But, but often, uh, when the evil day has arrived in my own soul, which it does from time to time, when I, when I feel the onslaught of the spiritual forces of evil, I have on many occasions taken these words from the catechism on my lips in prayer. And I have cried out to the Lord with these words, Lord, I am too weak to hold my own, even for a moment. Uphold me. Make me strong. Don't let me go down in defeat in this spiritual struggle. I testify before you today that the Lord has answered that prayer for me on many occasions. He's helped me. He will help you too. But don't take it from me. Take it from Ephesians 6. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that in this great struggle, we are engaged in daily with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have you on our side. Father, we confess that by ourselves we are too weak to hold our own for even a moment. And we need you to uphold us and to make us strong so that we don't go down in defeat. Indeed, Lord, we ask for that again this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen.